Episode number 90, Doug Elliott, Creating a Nature-Based Education Through Storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so glad that you've made it here tonight with us, that you have come here to the place where we love and care and tender and grow and plant the ideas that are behind storytelling. We take the time to look at every single aspect. We take the time to hold it up into the light, to look at every single corner and nook and cranny. And we tender and care for our seeds, and hopefully they will grow within you. They will grow into fine, fine stories. Tonight, I have a gentleman who I admire in his ability to run nature-based programs, to run educational programs. And that is Doug Elliott. Doug Elliott. Now, before I tell you about Doug, i got to tell you this. I have a Master of Science in Environmental Education, and I've been working in education, in, in education and environmental education for almost 17, 18 years now. And during that time, I have become a little cynical about nature-based education or introducing what I think of as urbanites to a wild landscape. I've become a little cynical because I've encountered a lot of programs that are very dry, uh, very uninteresting, and kind of turn me off. You know, they're, they're kind of aimed at a very simple, I would think, I would think fourth grade level. They don't inspire a passion, a passion that I feel towards environmental education. They don't inspire a passion towards the woods. And Doug Elliott, last summer at the National Storytelling Network conference, he invited a whole bunch of us to go on a walk with him in the woods. And I went, you know, I'd heard he was, he was good. And so I went and I was polite. And, but the guy was amazing. You know, the things he knew, the details he was able to reveal about the woods, the, the way he was able to teach on various levels at the same time for the beginners and the more advanced people in the group, the way he wove storytelling into his various lessons, it was seamless. And behind it all was a passion and a care and a love for the woods that was just amazing to behold. And so it's a great honor to have him on the show. Thank you so much for coming to the show, Doug. Glad to be here. So, um, Doug, you got a story you could share with us? Well, one time I was with some friends, and we were fishing along a river in West Virginia. And these guys, they were good fishermen. They were good, they were sport fishermen. And a lot of times I had to talk to them hard to get them to actually keep the fish. And, but to me, the idea of being able to have fish and be able to eat fish right out of the river and cook them right on the riverbank was just too good an opportunity to miss. And so I finally talked these guys into keeping a few of their fish. And we were catching a few smallmouth bass and these little ones they call red eyes. They're, they're called rock bass. And, uh, and we actually caught a few and, uh, and, uh, we'd get a few good ones and I would take them and I'd clean them. Soon I was leaving them to do the fishing and I was cooking. And, uh, and so, so I'd clean the fish. 
then I'd go get some spice bush twigs. Spice bush, Lindera benzoin, right? Spice bush has a great flavor to it. Sometimes we use it for gamey meats. It'll help take the gaminess away and give a good flavor to the meat. So we get spice wood sticks, and I and I skewered them on spice wood sticks, and then and then we uh, we set them under the coals, let the fire burn down. We cooked them on the coals, and and it was great. We sat down and. and uh, and we'd even found some wild mushrooms that day. So we took some of those wild mushrooms and we cooked them right in the coals. Usually it's nice to have a little grease, but we didn't have any with us. So we just cooked them right on the coals. And they, you know, we had this marvelous meal. And we were walking back. And, you know, it was still an hour or two before dark. And we were walking back. And all of a sudden we see this fat water snake just swimming up the stream. Well, my buddy went out and just grabbed at that water snake. And now the thing is, I don't know if any of you, if any of you or any of your listeners have, have ever fooled with water snakes, but they tend to be, you know, some people say, they're aggressive. Well, they're not aggressive. They're defensive. And uh, they're not going to come after you. But if you mess with them, a lot of times they just can't take a joke. And, uh, and they'll turn around and they'll bite you. Now, getting bitten by a water snake that's not a poisonous snake is no big deal. I mean, it does leave a little scratch. They have teeth. It leaves a little scratch. But it's no big deal, you know. But so my buddy, it does startle you. And my buddy, he grabbed the snake. He's going to show me how he's going to catch that snake. And, and sure enough, it weird around. It bit him. And, and he flung it up in the air. And the snake landed back in the water again. And, and it swam along. And it swam into these little shallow riffles. And I just followed along behind it. Now, I have this little game that I've been playing with snakes, where snakes that are normally known as being pugnacious, defensive snakes, I've been working on the concept that maybe you can actually pick up one of these snakes without holding it forcefully behind the head where it can't get you, that you can actually pick it up in a gentle way if you move very slowly and let the snake move through your hands so that it doesn't really feel like it's being restrained. And, uh, and if you can just pick it up easily and quickly and let it keep moving so it doesn't really feel like it's being held, sometimes you can pick that snake up and it will calm down and you can even pass the snake among, among, pass the snake among other people. And, uh, and it, won't, it won't be defensive and won't bite. And so, so, so I snuck up to this snake and it finally slowed down in the edge of these riffles in this little shallow water. And I was going to try to do that. And so I, I reached my hand up towards the front of the snake and I was just trying to come up under its chin. And I was just moving my hand very slowly because I didn't want to disturb the snake. I had my other hand ready to cradle the middle of its body. And the snake, all of a sudden its tongue started coming out like it was very interested in my finger. And the next thing you know, it opened its mouth and started swallowing my middle finger. <laughs> now, now, this snake wasn't biting me defensively. This snake was swallowing my finger. And I, I, had, I had never been swallowed by a snake before. And I was astounded. My buddy was there watching, slap-jawed. You can talk to him and he'll admit, he'll admit that it's true. And we watched. And that snake worked its way up my middle finger, got all the way to the last knuckle. And then I moved just the slightest bit, and all of a sudden it kind of realized what it was doing, and it just opened its mouth. And I don't think, it, I don't think its teeth even broke the skin. And like, whoops, excuse me. And, uh, and then, it, then it kind of swam off, and I was just so amazed. And I just wanted to tell you that's the story about the first time, I, and maybe the last time I was ever swallowed by a snake. And I realized what happened, of course, was I'd been cleaning all those fish. So my fingers smelt just like fresh fish, and that's what that snake eats for, for, its, for its main diet. And it, it just thought I was a fish to eat. So there you go. That's the story about when I got swallowed by a snake.
And that story contained a couple ideas about respecting animals. Was that intentional when you told that story? Well, well, to me, it's just was it intentional that it? Well, it does it does show different kind of ways of relating to nature, and you know, so many of us, you know, that, that sometimes we're sort of trained look and don't touch, but I feel like so much of my love of the natural world came from touching, smelling, tasting. And, you know, I think as a little kid, you know, I caught every frog and toad and snake and turtle that I could catch. And I would bring them home and I'd set up turtle ponds and I had snake cages. And and and, um, and I think the ability, you know, the ability to be able to, to relate with these things, to be able to catch them, to be able to have a hands-on experience is what helped engender my love for the natural world. And, you know, I think the next and the next stage sort of came... As I got older and started to realize, well, gee, I know most reptiles and amphibians and, and I know most of the trees. And I know most of the birds. I've been looking at birds since I've been a little kid and trying to identify them. And, and all these plants, all these wildflowers out there. And like, I don't hardly know any of them. And so I started going through the wildflower books. And I started, I'd go out there with my Peterson Field Guide. And, and it, you could identify the plant by the color of the flower. Well, that, you know, you realize there's a whole lot of plants that aren't flowering but if you just recognize the ones that are flowering you're doing good if you wait till next week there'll be new ones flowering anyway so it was a way to learn the plants and but i can remember going out there i remember going out in the backyard and seeing this yellow flowered plant and i remember looking it up in the book and it said saint john's wort well i remembered the name the name was kind of catchy but i had made no relationship with the plant i remember i looked up saint john's wort yesterday and i didn't even remember the plant and i'd already looked it up in the book the day before and i realized that it's the names and the stories that make that make the natural world come to life. And then I started to realize that St. John's word at first it makes a delicious tea. And second of all, it's slightly calming. And then now they're finding out it actually can be help and help to people who are depressive. And uh, and it has all these medicinal uses to it. And then I found out that there's there's hardly any plant. The more plants I learned, the fewer I could find that didn't have a use that I could find. And uh, and almost every plant out there has some story, some use, and then all of a sudden the whole green world came to came to life. And and um, so I spent a lot of my years. I spent oh almost a decade traveling around as a traveling herbalist. I went around and I would gather roots and herbs and and uh, and I'd make up these big tea blends. And I would take them to take them to folk festivals traditional music festivals and I'd set up a booth of herbs, teas and old time remedies and the thing that was so amazing about it is anybody who had anything to say about herbs, teas, old time remedies or the natural world I heard from them by the time the festival was over and of course these festivals they're bringing in old time banjo players and they're bringing in people from other countries that have ancient traditions and I realized that these bears of tradition know these old tunes they know a whole lot more than just old tunes and so they so in in some ways that was part of my classical education that was my master's degree right or my you know phd or who knows what but that was that was the that that really and and then of course when anyone tells you about things what they're really telling you is stories and so I realized it's the stories that really make the information stick and make the, make the world come to life, whether it's the natural world or anybody's world. This is Elisa Permain, and you are listening to Eric Wolf and the Art of Storytelling. I heard you talk about how your passion for the natural world 
came out of an experience you had in the natural world. Do you think that as as this America that we know and love becomes more and more urbanized, that we'll have less and less people who are passionate about the outdoors? Well, it's certainly a danger. And um, the old story that most environmentalists will say is that you can't you can't love what you don't know and you can't want to preserve what you don't love. You know, there's knowledge, there's love, there's caring, and that's really what we need to deal with. I mean, the natural world will provide surprises. You're not going to get maybe as good a view as you would through someone who has a telephoto lens on some TV show that shows a picture of a polar bear from a mile away swimming through the ice, but, um, but which is totally extraordinary. But there are other surprises. And, you know, in some ways, every time you walk out the door, I mean, and even when you walk in the door, every time you get out of bed, you're, you're embarking on a mythic journey. You're going to go into an unknown world. Even if you're going to the office like you do every other day, there's going to be something unknown. You're going into an unknown world, and there's going to be surprises, and there's going to be calls to adventure. That's what, that's what uh, Joseph Campbell called it. He said there's calls to adventure. They may, they may come through some kind of a surprise, an event, a problem, an encounter, and they could reveal, reveal ripples on the surface of life Let's see, you may find ripples on the surface of life that reveal hidden springs that may be as deep as the soul itself. So there you go. You go out there and you pick those weeds and you look and explore out there. You just never know what's going to give you a particular lesson or a particular teaching. So as storytellers, do we have to have an experience of the natural world to inspire other people in the natural world? You know, do, do we have to, do we have to actually have a lot of dirt time to inspire others to love the woods. Well, it depends. As storytellers, do we have to have much dirt time? It depends on what you call dirt. Now, some storytellers could spend, could find themselves rooting through the soil of the um, stacks in some library, and uh, and and just rooting up the very essence of stories through some mythic mythic tome they're reading. So, so you know, dirt time, yes. But, you know, sometimes I don't know if it has to actually be dirt. Uh, you know, urban storytellers can find stories, you know, in the in the um, the soil, the rich soil of urban life. So, so who am I to say that the natural world is the only place you find stories? Stories are wherever there's people. But how do you, when, when you're developing your material, you know, is a lot of your material based on stories people have told you, or do you actually create some material you, you think like St. John's wort, you know, used in the treatment of depression? Do you then create a story to around that, or are you telling stories mostly the, of some of these elders that you've heard over the years? Well, yes and no. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of like my neighbor shows up at shows up on my house and drops a groundhog, dead groundhog on my doormat, and said, "Here, Doug, you've been wanting one of these." And then I find out that, that um, I said, I've been wanting one of these, and I realized I'd mentioned, asked him about the old days. He told me about how when they used to eat groundhogs, and, and, uh, and then how they'd cook them, and how they'd fix them. And I said, boy, I'd like to try that sometime. See, I thought I was going to get invited to dinner. Well, next thing you know, groundhog came to me. The dinner came to me. And then through the process of, of eviscerating this groundhog and taking its hide, and then finding out the natives, the local folks use the hide to make shoestrings because it's so tough. And then I find out there's a whole, a whole nother way you can stretch the hide 
over a banjo to make a banjo head. So all of a sudden, here's this animal that some people think of as a pest, and all of a sudden, it's food, it's clothing, it's meh. They use the fat for medicine, and then all of a sudden, it's food, medicine, and all these things. And then I found out that the Native Americans call it a medicine animal because it knows all the medicine plants. And then I find myself out there following a semi-habituated groundhog at a public park, and I'm following it along because it let me get close, like not like my mountain groundhogs do. And I'm watching this groundhog, and I'm seeing all the herbs that it's eating. And the groundhog takes me along, and I just crawl along behind this groundhog. And next thing you know, I find out that that it's eating that it's eating dandelions, it's eating red clover, it's eating plantain, it's eating wood sorrel, and then and then clover leaves. And I realize that these are probably the five most useful edible and medicinal plants in North America. And talk about a beginner's herb walk. I just had one led by the medicine animal. Medicine animal, I don't know what they're talking about. And then I found out that they made medicine drums out of out of groundhog hide. And then I, and then I so I could I, I had next time I got a groundhog, I stretched it over some white oak that I was splitting made a groundhog hide drum and you could hear the groundhog energy transformed and then i find out that groundhog's day is, comes on february 2nd and february 2nd is a cross quarter day and a cross quarter day is the is the halfway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox but it turns out it's also 40 days after christ was born the day of the presentation of the lord in the temple because the virgin mary was a nice jewish girl and she was following the law of moses and so she took joe took jesus to the the temple to make a presentation, make an offering to redeem him from God, and so it all ties into into uh, into ancient Christian lore, ancient Native American lore, and ancient pagan lore, and uh, and then you find out how groundhogs can defend themselves and their warrior animals, and and it just it just keeps on going, and so one story leads to another, leads to another, and so the narrative journey becomes not so much. Not so much this one particular story or encounter, but what what I find out about it as I keep asking. So all these experiences, they just they just cook on the back burner all the time. They're always cooking. And any time I find out anybody who might have something to say about groundhogs, I'll ask them, hey, what about groundhogs? And that'll come out. Or what about snakes? Or what about this? And, and I'll research it too. I'll read everything I can on whatever I'm interested in. And I'll try to find not only scientific lore, but go through the Bureau of American Ethnology, find out Native American lore. If it's some animal that has European traditions, try to tie into that. And so, so the story ends up almost, the narrative becomes almost my journey of investigation. And, um, and that's kind of, that's sort of the mythic journey we are in as we go through life, trying to learn about things, trying to figure out our friends, our wives, our husbands, our, our, um, our business associates, our, uh, our professions, trying to learn more about that thing. And that becomes a mythic journey. It's the hunt. You know, I remember sitting in, one time I got invited to one of these, one of these women's talk shows. You know, it was, it was advertising some, some storytelling festival and, 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 <laughs> I can remember they gave me about three minutes, you know, to, to tell a story, a three-minute story. And then and then they just went on. And, you know, I went shopping. And, you know what? I, I went to this nice shop. They had these beautiful antiques. And I picked up one of the tops. And, oh, I dropped it. Oh. And I realized, what are they telling? They're telling ancient stories. They're telling stories of the hunt. And we still tell those stories. And because... 
that was how we made sense of the world. We come back and we say, this is what I went out in the world and I found this. And this buffalo charged me. So when you ever get near a buffalo, don't do this because this is what it might do. Or if you ever get down to that car lot down there, if you talk to this guy here, he's got a good deal. And if you can just ask him the right thing, he will give you $500 off on your car. And, and we are all ears. We are really just trying to, trying to find information to help us make sense and make us best use the resources in our world. The tracks. You know, follow the tracks. There you go. And uh, you found those tracks. Those tracks have a story, and every story's different. I love to go out after a snow, you know. And one time, one time I was blistered, blizzard, it was blowing. And, and I'd gone up to the high mountains just to have a winter experience. Sometimes we don't get much snow where I live in North Carolina. And I went up to the higher mountains. I could drive for about two hours and go up about about three or four thousand feet higher and it was a blizzard blowing I was like wow this is a winter experience but of course with the blizzard blowing it means there wouldn't be anything but the freshest tracks because they'd all be covered so I was following along here and I, and I came and you didn't find any tracks and, and then sure enough I see these little tracks on the edge of this field and they're kind of waddly little tracks little four-legged critter and waddling along and had kind of a waddling gait like a groundhog but they were too narrow for a groundhog and it was, I saw little digging marks in there and I realized I wonder if that could be a skunk. I wonder. And I started walking along and following along. That blizzard was just blowing sideways. The snow was blowing. And I practically walked right up on the skunk. And of course, the skunk, they don't really hibernate, but they lay up when there's, when there's some cold weather. And so when I realized that skunk, it was so busy trying to get its food and trying to get a good, good belly full before the snow came in. It was digging. It didn't even know that I was there. And, and I realized that I didn't almost know this there. And I thought, here I am. What am I following? You know, I'm following, you know, tracks. Tracks are part of the great palimpsest. You know that word, palimpsest? Palimpsest means a manuscript is written over and erased many times. John Muir said that, that, that nature is one great palimpsest. There's not a mark on there that's meaningless, but there are so many marks that it's hard to read them. And uh, I realize what I'm following here, I'm following an impression of the Creator. I'm following a trail of the Creator. And, and I'm following along here, and I practically bump right into the Creator's rear end. And I think, boy, that would have given me a cloud of enlightenment. But then I think, so, okay, what does this have to say to somebody who thinks of nature as the clearest manifestation of the Creator? You want to see God's work? Look at nature. That's the clearest manifestation. So if I'm out here following these skunk tracks, thinking this is the clearest manifestation of God's handwriting that I'm going to be able to read, and I walk right into it, what is that trying to tell me? Does that mean I'm missing the forest for the trees? Or who is it? Kabir, I think, that said, you cannot know the forest unless you know the trees. So I think I'm going to keep following those tracks, even if now and then I do blunder into the rear end of the Creator, and even if it might envelop me in a cloud of enlightenment. <laughs> I have a fox that works the stream in front of my house, and I've never seen him. And people tell me about seeing him, but I see the fox because I see his track. It's that, it's that dog-like, egg-shaped compression. And I love telling the story of looking at those tracks with my daughter, of that experience of... Because a lot of families, they really get into that story because they associate the opportunities of parents blowing it. <laughs> and, and when a parent really doesn't blow it and the, the kids are waiting for the parent to blow it, and I was thinking about what you're talking about in terms of the hunt and in terms of when we're telling a story of our experience of nature and we tell it as an adventure. 
it is very it is very seductive it is very attractive it's very interesting you know it follows easily from the tongue especially if we can draw it to some sort of conclusion or, or meaning yeah, I used to I used to when I was living up in New Hampshire I'd go out tracking all the time and there was a fox that I would follow and uh, and I'd follow, and he would often go along these tracks. And then I'd go out the next day, and I'd realize the fox had come out at night and been following following me during the day. And then it would go off on its own. I'd go off on my own and, and realize that we really were kind of creating a relationship. One time I got put a great big, warm, one whole bunch of warm clothes on. I just went there and laid out there and slept in the snow. And all of a sudden, I didn't really get to sleep, but I was just laying out there. And all of a sudden, I hear this scurrying along. That fox just about ran over top of me. It was so surprised <laughs> to find me there. <laughs> so you have someone who's working at environmental education, and they want to incorporate storytelling into what they're doing. So what I hear you saying is, that one, they have to have these experiences of learning, that two, they have to keep track of the hunt so they remember the course of events or are willing at least to fudge the course of events into a natural flow. And and three, they have to remember that passion and excitement of discovery. And then they have to take all of that back into their walk, into that moment of, of working with that group. Does that sound about right? Yeah, well, the the, nat- the natural world forms the inspiration. So you have to go out and allow yourself to be inspired. And then your job is to convey that inspiration. And um, and to me, a lot of times what, what can work is the details. Is The details are what make things interesting. If you just find things. And, and it's interesting. You know, you can... You can you can, I mean, even a scientific name. I mean, they're just made up by these humans, and they're made up by a certain certain subculture that observes very closely and then attaches labels to these things. And sometimes even the attachment of the labels is funny. I mean, and so so um, so to me, there's there's human ways to 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 get a story out of almost anything having to do with. Probably anything, but particularly with particularly with nature, there's um, how did this plant get named? How did that animal get named? How can you use that plant? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? You know, it's often points of contact. How many points of contact can you find? I remember one time going out with a group of they were actually a group of herbalists, a bunch of people who taught herbs and they were herbalists, and and we were out in the spring of the year. It was in Massachusetts, and sure enough. Sure enough, there was a field with milkweeds coming up and dogbane coming up. And uh, they're both, they're in, a, they're in closely related families. They both are plants with opposite leaves. They both come up as little shoots in the spring. They both, when you break the leaves, give milk. Both of their leaves are oval. The dogbane's a little thinner. When it gets older, it turns a little bit red. Um, the milkweed's a little fuzzier, a little thicker, a little stouter. The milkweed is a delicious, nutritive edible. The dogbane is very poisonous. And these herbalists were going in, and I could tell the difference. I mean, I just just from my experience, and all, these herbalists who 
are fairly experienced with plants are, are freaking out. They're going, what? Here I am. I'm an herbalist. I teach her classes on herbs and wild plants. And, and one plant here is edible. And one plant is medicinal. And, and I mean, one plant, one plant is edible. And one plant is poisonous. And I can't tell the difference. What am I going to do? And we're all, and I'm saying, well, can't you see one's a little thicker? But then you'd find a, a real thick dog bane. And then a little thin, little young. And, and they're flipping out. I can't tell the difference. I don't know what we're going to do. And someone said, did we anybody taste Taste the plants? Taste them? Well, no. We should use the wise woman technique. You know, the wise woman technique uses the whole body to identify the plants. Oh, yeah? Okay, let's taste them. We tasted the milkweed. It was kind of chalky and mild tasting. And we tasted the dog bane. It was powerfully, overwhelmingly bitter. And so by using our, our taste buds, we were able to identify these plants when our eyes and our minds wouldn't. And so points of contact... Points of God. Not that I would recommend eating any plant that you can't identify, but um, but certainly tasting. I mean, even the mushroom people say you can taste the deadly amanita mushroom. You can taste it and spit it out, and it's not going to poison you. So I think it's I think using our taste buds and our sense of smell, crush, smell, feel, taste, it's a great way to to relate to the natural world. I I teach kids. I do edible plant walks with kids sometimes, and I teach them survival skills and tracking all this stuff. In my work with working with with children, I have certain categories that I don't teach. You know, I, I, I teach plants that are really easy to identify. I teach plants that... So I, I stay away from certain easily confused categories. That makes really good sense to me. And, you know, particularly, you know, again, any, you know, any kid, you know, 100 years ago, any native kid, you know, would be going out and and would know all those plants by the time they're five anyway. My kid, thank goodness, picked that up really, really quickly. You know, he was actually, I mean, he was about three or four and he was actually going out and catching, getting mushrooms and taking them in and cooking them and catching fish and we wouldn't give him fish hooks and he would and we wouldn't give him a sharp knife so we he started cleaning the fish with his with with a cheese one of those cheese spreaders had a little serrated edge on it if he can clean a fish with a cheese spreader i might as well give him a knife um but you know kids kids can you know kids are they're 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 actually often often more perceptive than adults and so there's no reason they can't learn it but for sure, when as a teacher and a, and a bunch of kids that you don't know very well, that's a whole different case. And then it's really important to just to stress there are a few plants out there that'll kill you dead, dead or now. I'm going off topic. Stories on a little bit here, but do you think I'm in of the group that says you just don't teach mushrooms? And I know you're not in that group. <laughs> so I'm I'm just curious. Just make the case for us. Someone convinced me. Morels last year for the first time had some morels. They were delicious. Um, chicken mushroom three years ago for the first time. Puffballs four four years ago. Like and this is you know I've been eating edible plants for you know 17 years. So I'm getting late in the career and I'm letting other people who consider themselves mushroom experts. Do you think mushrooms are something to be very cautious about or what's your approach? Of course, some of them are deadly. So of course you're cautious about them. 
but but I mean, you know, any you know any five year old in Poland or probably Germany or Sweden can go out and pick five or ten edible mushrooms. Certainly, my little guy when he was little could, and um, now he knows a whole lot more than I do about mushrooms. But but um, he's a teenager now. But um, but of course, of course, caution is so important. And and uh, but you know, and what you just what you just talked about was the foolproof four. I can remember when I first started the idea that you could eat these mushrooms was. I remember a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine said this lady came by and and she wanted to, the giant lady and she wanted to pick these mushrooms off the stump that was going in front of my house. So I told her sure, and and she said she yeah, she was going to take them home and cook them and eat them. I said, she knew mushrooms? Did you get her number? She said, yeah, I got her number. And you think she'd tell us? Let's let's call her. Yeah, can we bring over some mushrooms and you help us identify them? Sure, I'll be glad to help you. And uh, so we ran out in the backyard and back out in the woods behind the place. And and we came up with a huge basket full of all kinds of mushrooms. We brought them to her and she went through that whole basket. No, I don't know that one. I don't know that one. And I think the Polish people, I think they eat that one, but we don't. And then I think, no, no, I think the Germans might do that. Ah, but we don't eat that one. She only knew one or two mushrooms. And because of that, she ate lots of mushrooms. Mm-hmm. She knew the one or two that she knew well. So I definitely encourage anyone to go out there and try to learn one or two mushrooms well. And you get a good mushroom book and figure out which ones, or join a mushroom group, figure out which ones are the common ones that are edible. And you can eat lots of mushrooms and know hardly anything about them and eat lots of them safely. And you should only eat one or two kinds. So, the, And the stories about mushrooms. I mean, I mean, just the big story is that you know, that the whole fabric of the earth is held together by mycelium. There's hardly any plants that are growing on this planet, or at least on this continent, that that are not infected with fungus. And if they weren't infected with the fungus, they wouldn't grow very well. So it's like fungus fungus actually actually connects to the plant roots, hooks into them between their cells or inside their cells, and then extends out into the into the earth and increases the surface area of every plant you know practically and uh, increases its area by a hundredfold and allows those plants to be able to have a, a really efficient nutrient exchange and they hook up to other plants and so they really they really are what connect the earth. And what to me is amazing, you know, they found out the largest living thing was a mushroom. You know, everyone thought it was a blue whale or a, or a, or a sequoia tree. They found out, no, it's a mushroom. And they actually went in this area. It was, it was out in out in the west in Oregon or somewhere. They tested the DNA, yeah. Yeah, and they found these mushrooms of this of this whole big forest area, and they found, out, yep, same species. And then they went and tested the DNA and realized that it was the same mushroom. And they calculated, they realized that this thing was covering thousands of acres. And they realized the largest and maybe the oldest living thing is a mushroom. And what that says to me is, so your friends call you up and say, hey man, the chanterelles are up, the morels are up, and uh, go out and get some, see if you can find it in your woods. And we could all be out there walking through the woods, putting the same mushroom in our basket. What a giveaway. What a story. Someone starting out, they want, they're really excited about sharing nature with kids. They may have some experiences that they want to share. Um, they may know a little bit of knowledge about um, dandelion or plantain, or they may, um, they may know, right, here's, here's wait, the they, they may know miner's lettuce or white man's footprint, <laughs> which is basically dandelion or plantain. 
how do they get started? What what suggestions do you have for for using storytelling in your um, in educating people about the natural world? Well, I mean, okay, if you're starting out as a as a fairly rank amateur naturalist, what you do is you and you have a bunch of kids say, all right, kids, let's go out here and see what we can find, and who can find the most interesting thing? And next thing you know, they start spreading out and they they work like little beaters. You know, and they kind of beat the bush for you because you'll walk along the trail, right? Where are they going to be? They're going to be off in the thickets and down in the creek and turning over rocks. And next thing they start finding things. Hey, what's this, Mr. Elliot? What's this? Well, all right, you might not know. Let's figure it out. Come on. We got the teachable moment here. Let's go figure it out. And then you figure out what kind of salamander that is. Or maybe you, or maybe you don't learn, maybe you don't get to tell them much that time, but you certainly encourage their observation. Oh, you are such a good observer. My goodness. Wow. Look what else I found. The next thing you know, they just turn this thing over. Over there realizing there's so many interesting things and then if you have a chance to take them back and go up and look up stuff that's great or it just gives you fodder for your for your next class and all of a sudden you go but you find out what kind of salamander was that that kid found what's the story on that how's that salamander make a living what kind of plant was that, that had that funny looking bug on it what kind of bug was that what and then and then you start your own little narrative journeys of finding these things out um you know the, the you know it it's always fun to make, you know, okay, so humor, humor and humor and stories. It's always fun to make fun of somebody. Well, if you, you know, it's, it's sort of politically incorrect and not very polite to make fun of somebody, but you can make fun of yourself. You know, about, you know, the first time I saw that, you know what I thought that was? I thought that was a so-and-so. Well, I found out that it was something else. And this is what I found out. And so then, so then they realize you uh, don't know a lot of things and they don't know a lot of things. And so you're just like them and we're just, we're all just kind of searching through this world together, which we really are. You know, I always liked, I always liked, uh, the Ram Dass, when he would give talks, he would always say, all right, now we're coming to the question and answer period at the end of the talk here. And where this is where you pretend you have questions and I pretend I have answers, you know. <laughs> and I think that's true because there's always more to know. And yes, you have some kind of an answer, but it might not be the whole story. And, you know, and then and then sometimes what happened when that kid? Wow, this kid put his hand in that water and this thing bit him. Well, we found out what it was. It was a so and so. And then all of a sudden, that that gets that's you got a story going on and it's starting to happen. You know, you know what the Indians said about that? They call that a so and so. Or you know what? You know. And then then you ask people, ask anyone you know who might have any experience with that. You know, just ask them, see what kind of stories you hear. And then you then it may be maybe complete misinterpretations. It may be. Some real, real truth that is unknown in the scientific journals. You may get new perspectives on the natural world. What about for the more experienced people who may have a lot of experience um, doing the same hikes, leading the same groups over and over again? People who who may see a new group every week doing the exact same activities over and over again. Well, that's where that's that's where you're going over the same territory. So this becomes your territory. So you're inviting them into your territory. If I'm going to give a walk somewhere, I can pretty well just start anywhere and just start talking about whatever planet it is. But I always feel like it's really good for me to go through and scout the area ahead before I go and do any walk and to, to, to know where I'm taking them. First of all, because... It, you, I can, I can, I can realize. Okay, it'd probably be good to go this far down this trail because we can get this far. We can see this, so I have some target at the end of the trail. But also because I feel in some way what I am, what I am offering is some level of intimacy with the environment, 
And so I want to invite you into this special section of the woods where I've been and show you some of my favorite things. Even though I've only was there an hour before, it might be the only time I've ever been there. But at least it, at least I feel, I feel like, you know, I even hear, I hear professional storytellers say, oh, I go into the, I go into the theater, you know, two hours before my show and I go in and I sing and I make a little noise and I stand on the stage. And so that way I can invite them into my place. And, you know, when I heard, when I heard storytellers talking about doing that in a theater, I thought, that's exactly what I do. And when I'm in the woods, it's like, to me, it's like what I want to offer you is come, come into my place. And so I think that's, that, and, and so someone who gives a walk in the same area, for sure, maybe some parts might get a little repetitive. But it's, you know, that's, that's where that, that inspiration time, that time alone, that time transforming one's experience, one sitting and looking in different ways. Thoreau used to talk about, <laughs> in his journals, he talked about, just go out and then um, stand up and then put your head down and look between your legs. Everything's different that way. And there, there you look on the top is there's a river flowing in the top in the sky, and the sky is all down below. <laughs> he was a character, wasn't he? <laughs> but any, anything you can do to sort of change and broaden your perspective. On this topic, I've interviewed Michael Cadajo and also Fran Stallings. And in each of these interviews, the importance of being alone for a period of time, and also Mark Morey of the Nature Awareness School in Vermont. And each of these people talked about the importance of taking some time to just do sits in the woods, the importance of developing a place to return to. That's, that's, a, great, that's a great experience. I, mean, I think and sometimes what I have done, particularly with like junior high school kids, stuff like that, and um, it's sort of taken them down the trail and dropped them off one at a time and left them with some kind of notebook or something and say, just observe, see what you can see, make some notes, make a drawing, make a, anything you want, and see if you can come back with something, if only a story. And, uh, and, and even though they may resist a little at first, sometimes they can work out really nicely. I know some, some camp experiences do what they call morning watch. I can remember my friend Eustace Conway up at Turtle Island, he said, Oh yeah, we take the kids up and we just sit up on sit up on the mountainside and we watch the watch the sun come up between the trees in the morning and we sit they sit we sit in absolute silence for oh half twenty minutes half an hour or so silence I said you keep you keep school kids silent how do you do what do you do heavy trip them I said he says no no we just expect it of them and we challenge them <laughs> to it. You know what? I worked for him for a while just to see just to see how that worked, and it was amazing. I mean, we worked with a group of ninety fourth graders or fifth graders, and absolute silence. He says, "Now you have to kind of ride it for twenty minutes." We did it with high school kids. Loudest sound you maybe hear was just maybe like a little little piece of nylon rubbing against each other, and and a lot of them would come back and say that was the best part of the whole whole experience. <laughs> So there's something to be said for that, and it, you know it's hard. It's hard for me to sit still. At least if I get a little keep, keep a little sketch pad with me, that helps me sit still a little bit. Because it's often that 20 or 30 minutes. That time you just get like, man, I can't stand this any longer. That's often when things happen. But you can just make yourself stay a little longer. What's really spectacularly simple is that I hear you answering a need in the environmental education community, and. In the environmental education today, there is a reliance on Native American storytelling. 
And I've had a couple Native Americans come on the show to talk about this issue. Um, and I actually had an interview with um, Joseph Bruchak that I lost due to technical reasons. <laughs> and in that interview, though no one will ever hear it, he did talk about how important it was people were using those stories, but also how important it was that if people were going to tell professionally, they use other stories, <laughs> that people use their own stories. And what's really exciting talking to you and listening to you right now is that I hear you talking about nature-based education that is completely based on an authentic American cultural experience. Authentic American often includes Native American. Well, well yes, but Native Americans are, are very clear that that um, many of their stories belong to certain people or certain nations right. and are abused in certain ways. Uh, I'm not excluding Americans in terms of Native Americans, but I'm just talking about how how do we create nature-based education from our own experience? How do we do that? And I really heard heard you outlining that. Right. I, I think that's true. That's I think that's true. That 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 certainly our own experience. Our own experience is what sets us up. It sets up. I mean, I always think that there's there's a, an encounter. Uh, let's see, a question and problem, an encounter or an incident, an encounter, a problem or a question. And that's where it all starts. And it's so it's how do you resolve that incident, question, problem, incident, encounter, problem, or question? How do you resolve that? You start yourself on a narrative journey. And a million narrative journeys because there's a million things out there to explore. And you explore it scientifically. You explore it experientially. You explore it narratively. You explore it historically you explore it culturally every way you can because every perspective will give you some other aspect you know the scientists have they have they have like 16 words for hairiness in a leaf for the quality of the hairiness that's like the Eskimos with snow. I mean, there you go. There you go. So, we're dealing with people who have a deep relationship. You need to honor that. So, we need to know what is all those different kinds of snow? You know, what is all those different kinds of hairiness? They all describe something. You know, there there's different ways of looking at all these things. And so so to me it's like take them all in. Yeah, Native Americans have great perspectives on certain things and certain certain you know, this is the world they live in. This is the world they have lived in. And um and so do scientists and so do people country folks and so do hunters and so do fishermen. And so, you know, they all, everyone has a, has a, and if you can start to look at the different points of view, it just, it just rounds out this, this incredible world we live in. It seems to me that the, the limit of what you're describing as the way to develop a nature-based, story-based education, the limit here is in the exposure. Yes, someone can buy all your books, <laughs> you know, and you have some amazing resources, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, but there is a limit to, you know, someone living in a city to the amount of exposure they can get, to the amount of people they can ask. I remember when I was living in New York City and I would I would hang out with wild man Steve Brill where I would go to um, herb classes by, uh, I don't know if she's still alive, Violet Snow at the time. These were both very urban-centered herbalists and and the education I received from them was very sort of 
urban center. It's very, I don't know how to describe it, urban centric, um, sort of more of a focus on the use rather than the habitat. Not to put down um, Steve Brill or, or Violet Snow. And it wasn't until later when I started encountering herbalists who live in a more country landscape that I discovered that there was sort of a bias to my education. And I started to think about it in a different way in terms of not just use, but also, you know, what is the life of the plant outside of the human experience? Um, so I guess I, I'm sort of rambling in my question here, but what I'm really asking you is, is there a way for someone who doesn't have a lot of exposure to nature to develop these stories? They can try to read books. They can try to uh, read online material. They can try to listen to stuff and work it out themselves. And get into nature. I mean, and and you can certainly find nature in cities. And you can drive out of the city for an hour or two. And, and you can create experiences. I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read any of Hope Ryden's books. You know, incredible. You know, she spent four years with the beavers. I think she lived in the city the whole time. And would just, just go out and spend a, spend a couple of days camped out beside a beaver dog. And camped out beside bobcats in the desert, you know. And... And, um, you know, and just wrote these incredible, incredible observations about critters. Maintained an apartment in New York City, you know. <laughs> you know, but certainly spent her time in the woods. And, I, you know, I think, you know, I mean, you can't teach about something you don't know. And so and what all, all I'm saying is just try to find, find ways to, to know more. I mean, you can... You could spend, you can, you can see a whole lot in a park. You know, there's birding groups and, you know, that work Central Park like crazy. See all kinds of, all kinds of things. I think the first time I ever saw a brant was, was, was from, from. A what? A brant, a, a kind of a goose. Um, first time I'd ever seen one was, was from New York City, I think. It was in a, there's, I don't remember what it was, but some people took me to a park outside of Brooklyn. I mean, you know, in the edge of the sea there. Again, I'm biased. I spent so much time in New York learning the different plants and herbs and the, the relationships between the waves of immigrants and the plants of Central Park is just amazing to me. A great example is the ginkgo tree. and the, there, are, there are families, Chinese families, who for generations have guarded and protected certain ginkgo trees. And when the female fruits, there are wars fought that have been ongoing for generations <laughs> about access to the fruit and who gets there first and there's a relationship going on there that goes back to the home country. Hi, I'm Anne Glover and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Okay, now do I go? Okay, monkey, yeah, go ahead, your turn. Okay, hi. Um... No, wait a second. Um, wait, can we start over? Because I forgot if I... No, Monkey, just say hi. This is Monkey. Hi, but Anne, what? They don't know me. No, but th that's why you're introducing yourself. Hi, this is Monkey. No, I'm Monkey. I know, I'm just telling you what to say. Hi, I'm Monkey. And this is... You're listening to... And you're... But what if they're not listening anymore? They're listening, Monkey. Just talk to them. Um... Okay, you're listening to the art of storytelling. But Anne, Anne, what, monkey? You say with Brother Wolf. Come on. Oh yeah. Um, but why is he called Brother Wolf? It's his name. Well, his name's Eric, but he's calling himself Brother Wolf. Why don't we just say with Eric Wolf? 
Well, you can say that, Monkey. Okay, hi. This is Monkey, and you're listening to Eric. No, but then they'll think I'm Eric. No, they won't, Monkey. They really won't. Okay, hi. This is Monkey. Um, and... You've got to wrap it up, Monkey. Wrap what up? End. We're running out of time. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey, and um, um, you're listening to the art of storytelling with Brother Wolf. 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 Eric. Is that it? That's it, Monkey. Well done. Um, I want to ask you and give you the opportunity to talk about some of the resources you have online. My listeners will recognize this as the, the offer session here. Um, but I feel like you have so much to offer. I want to kind of give an opportunity to really catalog some of the different stuff you have. Um, I've done a lot of reading of different uh, different uh, naturalist materials, and I really liked, in particular, I really loved one particular book, Wild Woods Wisdom, that was... Um, Probably, you know, I should say it's it's the only book I've read of yours. <laughs> so I like that book, uh, and I like the way that it was personable and solid and real and full, just chocked full of of uh, nook and cranny, of just all sorts of really great stuff. Well, that's that was that's probably the most literary of my books. The sort of the best stories developed out of the natural world. But I have, I guess, five books now. One of them just came out last week. That is here. We're in May of 2009 or June of 2009. And um, and that that's called Swarm Tree of Honeybees, Honeymoons, and the Tree of Life. So I'm just trying to cover a few things there. <laughs> and, uh, and so sort of exploring just that very thing that we've been talking about, that confluence of nature and humanity and spirit. And how do we find that whole... That whole con, con, that confluence where it all comes together, and so just trying to take stories, sort of like a little like I've been telling you, and trying to to sort of realize the epiphanies that can come when uh, when one is open to, to nature and 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 using sort of nature as kind of a metaphor. And then I have a bunch of different CDs, everything one on fishing and one with just music and one on bees and one on on uh, bullfrogs on your mind and and crawdads, doodlebugs and creasy greens and and uh, and and raccoon and opossum, you know, some for kids and some some more kind of adult, but not really X-rated or anything. And then um, I got about I got this this new book and then that Wild Woods Wisdom you talked about, and then there's sort of a homemade one I have called um, called Woods Lore, and then the little songbook. Which kind of goes with the CD, Crawdads, Doodlebugs, and Greasy Green, and that pretty well covers it. And I make bark baskets, and often we have a little bit of honey for sale, depending on how how our bees do. That's the main product. And you um, present a lot of herbalism conferences around the country. A few. I do a few of everything. I mean, a few storytelling festivals, and a few nature things, and a few schools. You're certainly up and coming in terms of the amount of coverage you're getting. You were at the National, or you're going to be at the National? You were at the National last year. Last year. Yeah, they, they, they're starting to let me come about every few years, so that's that's nice. It's a, you know, it's such a great venue, and so so many appreciative people. I have mentioned before in the show that I am interested in putting on a a retreat for nature-based storytelling, and actually. 
in 2010, in the second week of April, we'll be putting on a s- environmental storytellers retreat in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And a, a bunch of storytellers who've come on the show will be attending. And if you are a storyteller or you are a naturalist, you're welcome to attend. Um, you really have to fit one of those categories. If you're just interested in learning about um, the art of mentoring or nature-based education and you can't make that retreat, you're still welcome to just shoot me an email and say, add me to your list for future environmental retreats or nature-based education retreats, and I will keep track of you and keep you in touch. You got any final words for the international storytelling community? Shoot me an email, too, if you want, and I'll put you on my list. <laughs> Check out the website. There's, I'm trying to get a little blog that's going. And, uh, and Say your website. Our website is um, www.dougelliot.com, and that's two L's and two T's in Elliot. So do you have any final words for the international storytelling community? Keep it up. Keep the stories going, y'all. Well, I hope... I hope that maybe some of this will help people realize that there are so many stories right out their door. And it's just a matter of going out there and asking the questions, putting yourself in that place, listening for that call to adventure. What is that little critter flying by? What is that thing underneath my feet? What's in that stream that's flowing by my house? And those are the, those are the questions that will start the stories. And then even your story of what you found when you went out there becomes part of your personal narrative. And, of course, the more points of contact that you have with the natural world, the more you'll be able to understand the workings of the creator and the creation. In this conversation, it feels like we've been talking about an inheritance of sorts, an inheritance that is uniquely human, that is built in a culture that we have been drawing away in America and around the world. We've been drawing away from the natural world. And as we draw further and further away from the natural world, the mystery and the excitement and, and the knowledge becomes fewer and fewer and harder to see. But the, but the interesting thing is it's really easy to just reconnect and to find that mystery and to find that knowledge again. It's actually a lot simpler than you think. It's just a matter of stepping outside your door, of spending a little time in the outside. John Young has a story he tells of of when you walk out your door, look for the robin, and there's going to be one. There's a robin that's going to be outside your door, and that robin is going to look at you. And if you can walk out your door... And you can get the robin to go back to what it was doing without flying away and giving an alarm call. Then you've really accomplished something. All he wants you to do is walk out the door and have a relationship with the robin. So when it looks at you, you behave in a way that it doesn't fly away. Good luck. <laughs> I'm still working on it. <laughs> I remember a kindergarten song of mine. Robin, robin, redbreast, high up in a tree. I looked up at him and he looked down at me. He rocks in a treetop all the day long. <laughs> singing his song. Every little birdie's on Jayford Street. Love to hear Robin go tweet, 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 rock and rock. Oh, wait, wait. We're gonna, can't have more than five seconds of a song or we get in trouble with the copyrights. Um, That's right. <laughs> so, thanks for coming to the show, Doug. 
You're welcome. Enjoyed it. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.